Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. So, um, something you probably already know, uh, boys do dumb stuff um, a lot, especially when they're growing up, trying to figure out who they are. Uh, in the world, if you are a boy, uh, you probably have a virtual Rolodex of dumb things that you have done. If you're a man, hopefully the lion's share of that is behind you, uh, but you're not out to pasture, so you still got some room to do uh, a little bit more. In fairness, uh, right, I already told Judah I was going to talk about him today, so in fairness, I'll go first. Uh, I, I did my share of dumb things growing up, uh, one of which when we lived in Rome, Italy, my two best friends in uh, the, the neighborhood, Michele and Giovanni, very Italian names, uh, decided that we would get huge boxes for fridges and appliances, washers, dryers uh, from a dock of a nearby business. And we would take those boxes and set them on top of a hill and place two to three skateboards, depending on the size of the box underneath. We would all jump in and just send it, right? And we would, we would go for it. Um, shut the lid, no steering, unguided, large hill. It was awesome. Uh, It had all the elements of fun for a boy. There was planning, uh, execution. We had to get said boxes without our parents or the business getting angry. Uh, Speed, that's the hill. Danger, again, the hill. Gravity, three boys' bodies that can tumble. Miraculously, nobody ever got hurt except for boxes. Many boxes did, in fact, die uh, doing that. Uh, And then we'd just go get more. In the words of my mother, though, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree in the dryer house. She loves to tell me that. Uh, Meaning my boys, by nature and probably by nurture, they do dumb things as well. Uh, Earlier this year, a cohort of boys in our neighborhood decided that they would undertake ding-dong ditching at the bottom of the circle in our neighborhood. If you don't know what that is, you go ring a doorbell, and then you run like crazy, Uh, And then you laugh like crazy. But uh, they did that in the bottom of the circle in our own neighborhood, which already tells me that these boys need a mentor in mischief. Rookies. What what you need to know, ding-dong ditching, is you don't ever, ever, ever do that in your own neighborhood. You do it in a friend's neighborhood or a next-to-you neighborhood. You, you, You do that so that you don't get recognized and you don't get in trouble. But those rookies didn't do that. How do I know that they didn't do that? I got a text because they got caught immediately. I got a text. I love you, buddy. I got a text from uh, one of their uh, best friends in the neighborhood's father, and he was fired up about it. Uh, I didn't know, but ding-dong ditching, apparently it hit a chord for him, and he wanted me to know that he caught them thought I would want to know so I could take care of it. And he was going to lower the boom on his boy. And he knew that I would do the same. And like, mm, I got him. And like, you know, let's, let's get after these kids. And uh, so he ended up grounding his boy for a week. Uh, he could not go outside for a week. Interestingly enough, his grounding, you couldn't go outside for a week, but he played Nintendo all week. So I just like, we have some difference of opinions on what successful grounding uh, is. Uh, but yeah, he got in trouble. So at the dinner table that night, if you know me or how I work, I looked at the boys and said, hey, did you do anything fun outside today with your friends? Anything fun? Um, and they kind of looked at each other and I wanted to see how they responded. The, the awkwardness in the moment of watching their face was great for me to see what they would do. And Abel immediately 
threw Judah under the bus <laughs> immediately. Abel said he was just watching with that boy who already got in trouble. Uh, they didn't do it. Judah and the other kid, they were the ones that did the ding-donging, and, and Abel just watched, and, and he did not do any of it. They were not guilty by Abel's logic. Since Kyo uh, and him did not do the, the ding-donging, they shouldn't be in trouble for the whole deal, right? They should be free. Apparently, that was the logic that Abel even told uh, that boy's father, we didn't do it. He shouldn't be in trouble in his righteous indignation way. But uh, the, uh, the father did not buy that because he told his son, it doesn't matter if you didn't do the ding-donging. You are guilty by... There we go. You're guilty just by your connection to them because you didn't remove yourself from the situation because you were connected to the people who did it and there was this known association. You are guilty because they are guilty. The idea of guilt by association is what I want to kind of hold on to this morning. And then conversely, I want to think about the idea a little bit uh, today and maybe through the, the week about the idea of, of innocence by association. Before we dig into that, I'll fill you into the rest of the dinner because that was fun. Here's my point. I told the boys, okay, here's the deal. Everyone, everyone I knew growing up did it. Everyone ding-dong ditched at some point. Uh, they've done it. Rookies got caught quick, so game's over. And the point for me was, you're not in trouble this one time. If you do it again, I'm going to bust your heads, right? So, so don't do it again. And they were shocked that they weren't in trouble and that they didn't get blasted by, like the other boys. So they asked me, did you do things like ding-dong ditching when you were young? I said, yes, I did. I guess in a moment of trying to kind of press it, did you do anything else besides that? I'm like, yes, I did. In fact... The first time that their mother met Garrett Richards, one of the elders here, Garrett drove to Iowa, and we went out in Iowa in the winter in his convertible and TP'd houses. I explained to them what TPing was, and we became very awesome, and they were more shocked. And we told them in that moment, don't you ever, 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 ever TP a house without me, because that stuff is fun. We'll be your getaway driver. We want to be there if you do it. If your house ever gets teepeed, what can you learn from this? All you got to do is ask Abel and he'll snitch us out. <laughs> if multiple of your houses ever get teepeed, what you need to know is it was my house and my MC, probably the Talmages. It would be totally fine with me if we started a, a turf war through teepeeing. Just don't do it when it rains because that's not a cool move. Uh, but they were shocked. Our cool points went up. They began to ask which of your houses they could teepee. And we said, well, we'll talk about it later. So... We're close to landing the plane in this series of Hebrews together. And we've done our best to kind of keep the point in front of us. I don't want to always reiterate to, uh, to, to just give myself some stuff to say, but without the context, this book just doesn't make sense. Uh, there's been 12 chapters of evidence about how Jesus is better in the book of Hebrews, superior than anything you'll ever find anywhere and ever. Jesus is better. And the reason that the, the author has been reminding the original audience and us of this is the cultural climate that they found themselves in is like ours. It wasn't fond of Christ. Even in, in the times when following Jesus will cause real tension and cause criticism and rejection and possible suffering and loss of relationship, the, the author wants to know that Christ is still worth it and he's better. Christ is worth it wherever he may lead you, even if sometimes it causes you to, to walk in some pain. 
It's kind of like the, the words of Paul in the New Testament. The sentiment is this, our current suffering is not worthy of comparison to the future glory that we have coming. Yes, things can hurt, but the current suffering cannot steal the beauty of a life that is reconciled to God now and the beauty of the promise of the fulfillment of that when Christ returns. This final 13th chapter then is one of application. It's the now what of following Jesus. How do we stand firm, press forward? How do we live? How do we pay attention? What do we need to pay attention to? And what the author does, if you'll, if you'll notice, is he gives three sequential steps of application. It started with what to love. We did that right before I went to Colorado. There are things that you need to fight to love. And conversely, there are things that you need to fight to not love. And then he moved into, uh, what do we need to embrace? There are things that you need to embrace. The, the leaders of old who are faithful, uh, the gospel that doesn't change. You don't need to embrace new ways and reinventing yourself. You need to embrace the unchanging Jesus and the gospel of grace that he's given. And today, it's going to add, what do you need to identify with or associate with? Imagine the stereotypical example of a child. In their younger years, a child will hold their parents' hand in public. They'll wave by when they're dropped off. They'll even give hugs. They'll linger in conversation. Some will show uh, some affection. But then something happens at some point. I don't know if it's when, when coolness kicks in or just appearance begins to matter in a different way. And all of a sudden, their affection and their uh, connection and their association with their parents becomes conditioned on the situation at hand and how it may make them be perceived and what it may cause, meaning they'll shift the way that they associate with their parents depending on the audience and the impression that may come. And some of this is totally normal, right? My, my boys love to, to snuggle on the couch and watch movies. It's their jam, right? And part of the reason they love this is because they get popcorn and they're fiends for popcorn, but they love to watch a movie, get popcorn, and just Abel cannot get close enough to you while he's snuggling. They all love that. And and that's great, but you better believe when I'm coaching Judah's baseball team, before sending him out to, to bat, I'm not like, hey, buddy, let's get a quick snuggle session. Come, come close to daddy right now. Like, we're not doing that. That would be weird for him, for me, and you if you saw it. Part of what the author is prodding, though, is this idea. While those associational changes and identifying aspects may change with kids, they should not with Christ. Low-hanging fruit, guys. With the source of life, we should not and cannot change our degrees of association with Jesus, with the Savior that we have stated, that I want to follow you with my whole heart. You cannot court the king at one minute and shun him, ignore him, or minimize him on another. It won't work for you, and it really won't work for him either. Some kids change their association with things as they grow, but all of us will have this happen. There are scenarios where our association, our connection to certain things will wane as we get older. Not necessarily because you're embarrassed, but more so because we're distracted or too busy in the moment. There are going to be things that we once associated with or identified with or connected with, but slowly but surely, maybe it's jobs or busyness or interests or stress or poor planning or inability to say no or calendar or YOLO who will create situations where we press things to the margins of our life that at one time were central to us. Things that once held a large position will then lower into a smaller, marginal, and then 
maybe non-existent position in our lives. No matter which, whether it is embarrassment or prioritization, both of these angles are in view in the author's mind this morning and what he's saying to us. And the message will be the same. Press into your association. Lean into your identification with Christ. Do not lean back. Do not pull your foot off the gas. Lean forward. Christ is not a hobby, a side gig, a season, or a Sunday thing. He's the king. And you offer your life to him. He's the one that brings redemption and meaning and peace and brings us to life. The world will tell you he's going to take your life, and the Bible tells you he gives it to you. A lukewarm association with Christ will cripple the way that you feel your communion and your faith walking out. Let's go into the text again. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of the animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for the sin are burned outside the camp. We got to understand what's going on here. Looking at the verses here, he's referencing what he's referenced all over the book of Hebrews, the old covenant sacrifices given by the priests and how the, the new covenant sacrifice given by Jesus is actually far superior to the old and even more so, the idea isn't just, well, okay, the, the old covenant sacrifices are not a, a degree of uh, less power than the new. It's not like the old sacrifices were like 70% efficacy, but the, but the new covenant is, is 99. The idea is the old covenant sacrifice, the priests, all the stuff back then, all of it was meant to point to Jesus. You're never supposed to decide which is better. It was always meant to be a handoff into the new and better. And this wording may seem tricky, but look at me. Uh, look at uh, what the author is saying. He says, we have an altar. Who's the we here? It's referencing those whose faith is in Jesus. And the understanding of an altar in our day can get a little bit lost because we don't really say altar very much. If you hear altar, you're like, dude, I don't know what that means. Maybe when you hear altar, you think of the place that people walk forward to to get married. Maybe you're, you're kind of Baptistic and it was the place that the, 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 the communion was held on. Maybe you were more Pentecostal or charismatic and, and you know of altars, that place at the front that you walk down to and you prayed at. And all of those have their, their reasons for existing, but none of those are what meant are meant here when it says altar. An altar is a specific place where something is made holy and set apart at. That's the function. It's the place where things are made holy. The way that these things are made holy in biblical language is by the shedding of blood. So the author says, we have an altar. We, those who are, have their faith in Jesus, are depending on him for the problem of their sin. We have a place to be made holy and set apart. And those who serve the tent, meaning those who are believing in animal sacrifices and the things outside of Jesus, they cannot eat at the altar that we have. We have an altar as a place to be made holy. And the ones who are not holding to Jesus have no right to eat at it. We can come and eat and be made holy those who hold to other things and not the new altar have no right. The altar here is meant to be the cross of Christ. That's the new covenant altar. Whereas those who trust in other things and other sacrifices, they cannot, they have no place, they have no ability, they have no uh, means to be cleansed if you're trusting in other things. So we may hear that and go, okay, wow, cool. I don't know what that means or how that's relevant to my life. So the author then actually explains it to us. He says, okay, the bodies of the old covenant sacrificed animals, 
They're normally given to the priest to eat. So there's this regular pattern of sacrifices. You, you, you did the deed. There's a sacrifice. There's an animal laying there. They're like, well, like the priest may as well be able to eat it. This happened all the time except for on the Day of Atonement. Uh, the priests on the Day of Atonement were not allowed to eat of the sacrifice. This one sacrifice happened once a year. It was kind of considered like the, the premier sacrifice that pointed to the, uh, to the removal of sin. On this one sacrifice, the priests couldn't eat it. And what happened is they could not be nourished by it. They had to actually take the animal outside of the camp, outside of the city, outside of the walls, and it had to be burned and completely destroyed out there. This detail could seem odd, but it's actually meant to teach a lesson. It's meant to be full of, uh, of symbolism and metaphor for us. Staying inside the camp is biblically associated with being near the presence of God in his good graces and connection in, in a familial relationship. Inside the camp is an association and closeness with him to go outside of or to be relegated or rejected to where you have to stay outside of the camp of God is considered the rejection of God. The taking of a body of an animal sacrifice outside the camp was showing how one thing had to lose its nearness to God and face rejection so the other people could stay near to God and not face rejection. It's showing how one thing lost nearness and was rejected. The sacrifice loses its closeness with God and faces wrath and rejection so that sinners can stay inside and not get destroyed and not be rejected. So, so here's the logic. Guilty sinners get to stay in while the innocent sacrifice gets sent out and gets absolutely obliterated. If you think, dang, that sounds scandalous and unfair, that's exactly the way you're supposed to think of it. It is unfair. Then verse 12 comes in to make sure that we cannot miss the point. Just like in the old covenant in the day of atonement, the sacrifice was taken outside the, the city to face scandalous destruction. Jesus, likewise, the light bulb is supposed to come out here. Jesus, likewise, suffered outside the gate in order that he would sanctify the people through his blood. All of that was meant to be point to what Jesus was, what did. He was not sacrificed inside the city, out on Redemption's Hill, outside the city. He was crucified so that he could be destroyed and the people of God could find the mercy of God. Jesus took upon himself the sin that he did not commit outside the city so that believers may be redeemed and may be saved. You're supposed to go, this just doesn't sound right. This truth leads the author to call us to a clear call of action, though. If Jesus did all of that, if he went outside the camp, if he faced rejection and scorn and brokenness and destruction, if he did all of that, and it says, let us not stay away from him who sacrificed his life for us. The only appropriate action, if you believe in this Savior who did this, is to move towards him and not away. Instead of running away, disassociating, making room, causing distance or ignoring, the author says, sprint towards the one who would do this. The one who would be broken for you is worthy to run after. Step back and see why exactly the author is getting at this. Association with Christ to the original audience was causing them difficulty. 
There's suffering and there's persecution and there's loss of opportunity and financial gain and loss of, uh, of, of relationships. So many were thinking, okay, because Jesus is causing us a problem and the culture is, is kind of rejecting or shunning or hurting us because of it. They're thinking of maybe it would be better to disassociate with Jesus to bring back some comfort. I'm going to maybe roll back my connection with him entirely or to some degree so that my life gets easier in a public square. The author places in front of our view the ultimate suffering of Jesus, what he went through, and says, this Jesus, the one who would die for you to redeem you, the one who would pay the price for the sin that he did not commit, that you did, the one who gives you access to the throne room of God, which is the very presence of the Father, the one who would allow himself to be broken, so that you could be made holy. He is not the one that you run from. He's the one you run after. And he's not skirting around it. The author is going to say to lead us to see, to run from your connection, your association, your identification with Jesus in the present moment because you don't like that it'll walk you into some stress because it'll bring about some hard conversations or, or make things at work difficult or because you like some other pursuit better in the moment or you're afraid of the way that the world may treat you because of your connection with him is a foolish and an ungrateful way to live. But even more than that, if leaving Jesus seems like a better option, I think the author wants to show us, hey, I think that your grip on life and what Jesus offers and what he's done for you, some, somehow you just kind of lost the grip of it. The unmistakable message we hear is the only way to be redeemed is the blood of Jesus. It's only the sacrifice of Christ that, 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 that makes us holy and makes us clean and set apart. It's only the altar that is the, the, the cross that makes us redeemed. To think of leaving Jesus means one of two things. Either all of a sudden you do not care about holiness. I don't need that. God is love. He'll deal with me because I, I'm just good the way that I am and I'm not as bad as other people. Either you do that or all of a sudden you've forgotten that Jesus is the only way to be holy. It's the only two things that can happen. The implication is still the same, whether you don't think you need to be holy or whether you forget Jesus is the only way. He says, run towards Jesus, not the opposite way. If he's the only path, if he's the only way, if he is the bread of life, remember and see the beauty of what he does and run towards him. Jesus says in John 6, some of the most troubling words that you'll hear him say in the Bible he had to actually backtrack and talk to his disciples because there was a mass exodus. A ton of people heard these words and said, I'm out. Too much, too far, I'm out. What did he say? He said, whoever does not eat my flesh and drink my blood will not have eternal life. A lot of people heard this like, what did you say? That's inexcusable. That's graphic. Why would you say that? But it's meant to be a reference to his new covenant sacrifice. You can search the world for life and for meaning and for what you think you need and a path to redemption. You can search everywhere and you're only going to find what you need in Jesus by your association with him. And an association with him associates your entire life with him. And his sacrifice on the cross, this is the only way to find life. So I will orient my life around this only way. This is what it means to eat his flesh and drink his blood. It's a metaphor for believing in Christ's work and then ordering your life around this belief in what he has done. 
for associating not only your identity, but your family and your being and your schedule and your pursuits and your hopes and your dreams with the cross and what it has won. To feed off the flesh and blood of Jesus becomes an all-encompassing thing. That's why it's not a side hustle or a Sunday gig. It's not a when I have a time gig. It's not a thing that I think about or talk about when I'm around Christianish friends and I put it away other times. It is the source of life that we are meant to feed off as often as we eat. Because just like our body needs the, the nourishment of food, our soul needs the nourishment of feeding off the reality of what Jesus has done. We need to reorient over and over and over. It's your body and your blood and your sacrifice and not my work or my resume or my person that makes me holy. It's you and only you. I will identify and press into and lean into that at all times. It's what I need. Some hear the continual call to feed off of Jesus. And especially the call to dedicate your life, order your life around Christ. And you'll hear this kind of, maybe they'll say it directly and and, and sometimes they won't. Many will say, that just sounds like too much. It seems legalistic, rigid, unfair to ask for that level of devotion. To believe, lead people to believe that they need Jesus that much and that often. Maybe they'll even throw out the abuse word now. It just seems wrong to, to, to press it that much. And the author says, if you do not think this is true, you need to remember you're not living for the city here. We seek the city that is to come. A believer is no longer living for the present moment or the now. They're living for eternity, for heaven, for what God is preparing, for a redeemed creation. We do not order our lives around the comfort that we get here. We order our lives around an eternity with the king with our tears wiped away. There's only one of two places you can live for. It doesn't mean you can't have anything fun here or enjoy here, but our ultimate hope is latched onto something else. If we begin to think that the call to feed off of Jesus is heavy and wrong and difficult and mean, we forget that this isn't our home. Generally, when, when a life says that seems like too much, what they're actually saying is, is I want to make more of a, a, a home here and that level of devotion to Jesus would cause me to sacrifice some things that I want here and prioritize here. We have to remember Jesus does not just save us from hell. He gives us a life of redemption to live in now. There's freedom to have now. He doesn't steal from you. He actually gives you life and freedom. We need to live in light of that new life that he offers us. We need to reorient our lives over and over. And by we, I mean me and you and all of us. We have this amnesia where we're turned to other things and we're drawn to other things or we get scared and run to other things and we have to reorient over and over and over in a world that makes it so hard trying to distract us. We have to focus our hearts on Jesus over and over and over again. Then what? The call, right? Here's association, the 15 and 16. They give you the real nuts and bolts of it. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The rubber meets the roads here, friends. What are the terms Christ offers 
the sacrifice of himself. He comes to the table bringing his resume, his perfection, his holiness. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to make ourselves acceptable to, to God. We don't have to achieve some certain level in order to get it. But to accept this sacrifice, the author says, looks like offering up our own sacrifice. And this is maybe where you go, I knew it. I knew it was too good to true, be true. This is where the other shoe drops. I knew grace wasn't really free. What do I got to do? What's my sacrifice? Praise. The sacrifice that you return is praise. We get clarification. Well, what does he mean by praise? Sacrifice of praise is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Can't skirt that one. There's so many that are here. I praise God in my own way and in the quiet. You don't get to do that. Jesus sheds his blood as the sacrifice. He comes to the table with his blood and his life. Our sacrifice in return is worship that comes from your mouth and out of your mouth. When we speak, when we acknowledge, when we sing, when we declare Jesus vocally, think about the trade here. Again, the word of the day, when you, when you look at the terms of what's going on here, is, is scandalous. Jesus brings his blood. You bring words. Jesus silently goes to the cross to be crushed outside the city. And it gives you a new heart that opens your mouth to declare his goodness regularly. You associate yourself and word and song and the declaration of your lips with Jesus. The question that it presses upon us, you can't really skate it. What's the fruit of my lips? Is it praise to the name of the Father, to the work of Jesus? Do the people who see me in the wild, in my neighborhood, in my job, wear a ho hobby, would they see any form of an association with Christ at all? The way I talk and how I speak and what I choose to speak about, or do we like the teen who wants to put some space between them and their parents, methodically limit our association with Jesus? Do we censor our words about him and our recognition of him and our association with him so that we not catch flack back for it? Again, if the, if the feeling is, well, this sounds kind of duty-filled, this sounds kind of like legalistic, I'd, I'd sidebar and say, like, we have to stop being so averse to devotion and the commands of God. He says over and over, honor me with your mouth, worship, sing, praise. We have to stop skating that. But the other thing that this is, is doing is it's not giving us a, a, a quota of Christianese language to start saying. I need to just add into my, my lingo a couple more Christian things and I'll cross it off the box. Honored you with my lips. And it's not asking you to go Jesus juke the next three people that you see when you leave here either. See, this question doesn't press into a matter of duty. What it presses into is a matter of the heart. Matthew 12 says it, it's out of an overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. You will speak about what you love and what you behold and what you look at. In regular speech, you talk about what's in your heart. We learn this from vegans and CrossFitters, right? 
If you love something, you talk about it. If you're building your life upon the foundation of Jesus, he'll be in your heart and he'll be acknowledged out of your mouth. So many people are scared of being that guy to the point that they silence their word about the Savior. To the point that other people who who need Jesus can't see him because we're too worried about being something else. The sacrifice of praise that the author says that we have that will come out of our mouth. He shows us it's not just empty words, though. He goes, it's going to be paired with doing good and sharing what you have. Meaning we're not all talk. We're not hypocritical politicians. You don't just say phrases about Jesus, but Jesus has rubbed off on your life to the point to where you do good because your king is good. Are you perfect? No, you don't have to be, remember? But you share what you have, including your life and your time, because he shared what he has with you. Grace has changed you to where the good of the king comes out of your life. And this posture in a world that's me and mine, and I'm going to get mine, this posture opens up your hand. I've freely been given grace, and I'll, in certain ways and at certain times, I'll share as well. How are we to think about a lot of this? There's been a mass exodus out of the church in the past 25 years. There's a recent article out of the Atlantic that estimates that that exodus is to the tune of 40 million people. It's hard for us to wrap around our, our heads around the number 40 million, isn't it? 40 million people who once went to church regularly now don't. They said, I'm done. I, I no longer attend. This accounts for the largest single drop and church attendance in history, 40 million people. Well, it may seem like because of what the loud voices say, that it's because of scandal and leader falls and secularization uh, and, the, and the death of the, the Christendom, and it's because we're post-Christian, everyone's mad, I've seen too many people fail. The evidence that, that this article showed was actually shocking. Most people didn't say that they couldn't reconcile the gospel to the modern world anymore. They didn't say that they no longer believed in God, the need of sin or redemption. They they didn't say that all of a sudden the, 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 the gospel was fake news and not relevant. They actually said they don't go to church anymore because they fell out of the habit. Marriage happened. Kids happened. All of a sudden, you hit that fun year two or three where you're sick for a couple weeks, and then you haven't come to church for for three weeks, and then you took a vacation. Then it's been three months since you've been to church, and you don't want to face the, hey, where have you been? Work happens. Kids' sports happens. Vacations happen. Hobbies happen. Brunch happens. Slowly but surely... Faith gets pushed to the margins of our life and then actually out the door. This was interesting because we would be led to believe by the loudest voices that people don't go to church because they hate Jesus and the church. They actually just kind of fell out. The article said that in this busy culture, the church started trying to catch up. They're asking the question, what do we do? 
What do we do about this? Since people are busier and life is hard, what do we do to counteract this kind of exodus? And so they decided what they're going to try and do is ask less of people. They're going to lower the bar of expectation and time and devotion and worship. The the church is going to try and start switching things where the church gives you everything that you need and doesn't ask very much back. Why? Because the inflated schedules just doesn't allow it. And lo and behold, what does this cause? A low bar of expectation paired with a busy life caused a vast majority of people to just go, I, I just don't do this anymore. They're not atheists, anti-gospel. A lot of them aren't even angry. They just kind of stop, stop declaring Jesus with their mouth, stop worshiping, stop showing up, stop associating it with, with word and, and deed and, and worship and the brothers and sisters of the faith. And all of a sudden, this thing that got pressed to the margin got pressed all the way out. We can argue whether those people were really saved or not and whether that was a, a divine pruning and all, the, all, all that you want. That, that, that's fine. But I think the interesting word that this tells us, though, is the way out the door isn't always anger. The way to stop feeding off of Jesus isn't always scandal. Sometimes it's just a slow pull towards other things, a bad season, a hard year. Or prioritization that just gets turned inside out. See, the call that the author for the original audience and uh, gives to the original audience in us is the same. Whether you're uh, afraid of the, the cultural implications of your association with Jesus or whether you just kind of got distracted or hit a hard season, lean back into Jesus. See the beauty of what he has accomplished for you. If need be, kind of circle the, the wagons again. Return to him with your, with your whole heart. Return to your first love by praising him again, by beholding him again, by doing good again, by, by, by following him and his ways and sharing your life and your wisdom and your time and your resources with the people around you, with the faith around you, by leaning into Christ, worshiping him, and pushing back darkness with your brothers and sisters. pushing back darkness and then it thunders. Interesting. The text serves as a fresh opportunity to ask ourselves in the moment in time. Just as a really simple question. There are times where the word just causes us to, to worship and praise and hear and accept. And there's times that the word just looks into the heart and asks a couple just low-hanging things. What does my association with Christ look like right now? And then be humble enough and honest enough to, to face the real answer in the moment. Is it strong or is it weak? Is your praise of God, is it growing or is it just kind of falling off somehow? As you're doing good or sharing him or sharing your life and your time, is it, is it doing well? Is it healthy or is it kind of fell off a little bit. Has a season of stress, other pursuits, difficulty, distraction, cause your association with Jesus in any way to just slip up a little bit? Again, these questions aren't to shame you or beat you. 
they're actually a part of a healthy biblical faith. We have to consistently ask, how am I doing? What's my life oriented about? And how strong is my communion with Jesus at the moment? This text isn't a shame when it's a reminder that the source of all that we have comes from Christ. Our source of life, our source of meaning, our source of peace, our source of hope. Everything good comes a strong and mighty hand of God through the Son. So the question of, hey, how's your association or your connection or your praise or your doing good or your sharing of life isn't meant to kick you while you're down. It's saying, hey, come from, feed from the, the, the fountain of everything good. If, if you've stopped drinking, come and drink again. It's an invitation back. Remember, the gospel of grace is you've been given everything that you need in Jesus already. Sometimes we get distracted and we need to be led back like the sheep that we are back to the, to the source. So if you've lost sight of that, this text serves as a call to draw near to him again. To evaluate things and turn back to the one who, who, who gives you all that is good and who is your king. The gospel is so simple. God sent Jesus for the problem of our sin. To come and live the perfect life that we couldn't and then he died in our place. Christ's work on uh, the, the, the cross is the act that we put our faith in, and to follow him is this consistent and continual reorientation of our lives around him and what he's done, around his work and his words and his promise and his person and his commands and his people. See, when the world is calling for your attention, to identify with Jesus is to get into a little bit of a nitty-gritty and dirty fight every once in a while to headlock and manhandle your own attention and point it back at Jesus if it's lost it a little bit. If you never put your faith in Christ, the good news is you can. That's the, the beautiful news. He was sent outside the, the city to be rejected in your place so that you don't have to be. You don't have to figure out more, perfect things, end things, or do things for God's acceptance. You pray, God, will you save me through your son? I don't even know what following him looks like. Will you teach me to follow him? I'm going to lean into you for the problem of my sin. I can't fix it, and I need you. Father, save me. I'd love to pray that with you if you've never have and you want to. If you're a believer and for a while now you've just kind of distanced some things, just hear the simple call from a loving father. Hey, come back home. I love the story of the prodigal son where the father is out waiting, actually sprinting to view the son that comes back. He's not a hateful guy who's ready to crush you because you've done wrong. At certain points when he calls you back home, it's to, it's to hug you and love you and give you the source of life again. Hear the call then. Come back to the Savior. How? A good way today to end things today is to, to pray, hey, I need your help. I haven't focused and fed off of you lately and then to begin to praise him with your mouth. Repentance looks like the humility at times to realize when things have gotten off and asking the Holy Spirit to help you when you notice they've gotten off, to realign your focus. I can start by coming to the communion table today. The communion table is a tangible way that we feed off of Jesus. We're taking the bread and the cup and you're saying it's your body and your blood that give me everything that I have. I didn't earn one iota of my salvation. Uh, I didn't go 10% and you went 90. It is all you. Your body has been broken. Your blood has been shed and it makes me holy and adopted and redeemed. And I haven't seen that for a while. So I'm gonna take it again. Father, my faith feels weak. Help me see the beauty of Jesus. And we take and we feed on it again as our source of life. 
You get to do that, and you get to pray and ask for help if you need. Sometimes maybe you go, man, my, my faith is strong, and you get to pray and thank the Lord for that, but you come to the table and you begin to praise him again and reorient things around him. You don't have to be a member here to take communion. We just ask that your faith be in him, but we get to start with tangible actions of coming to the table to take and singing and praying and worshiping. God, help me see you again. The primary jobs of the spirit is to show us the son. There are times when it's just confusing. How do I, what do I pray to the Holy Spirit for? What do I, at times when you've got distracted, you can't see Jesus clearly. Spirit, let me see the son. Spirit, show me the son again. If your focus has got lost, you can do that today. First Corinthians says this band, you guys can come back up. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, part of the reason that we take communion every week is a regular reorientation. We have good weeks and we have bad weeks. We have stronger weeks that we feel in our faith and we have some distant weeks, but we get to come every single week, whether you think you've been killing it or whether you think that you've just absolutely done terrible and gone, it's, it's still what you've done. It is what saves me. It's what brings me into the family. It is my security. It is my hope in you, in you alone. You were destroyed so that I can have peace in you. Come and take. And you thank the Lord for what he has done. And you ask him to help you keep seeing it over and over and over and strengthen you. Man, I pray that your heart would find comfort and strength at the table. And that we would have the, the strength to really analyze our lives. The summer is a hard time, friends. It's so easy for cycles to get off, distractions to get off, and to just kind of get out there. It should be a normal thing when that happens to go, even if you have to, I did it again. I started looking at other things, and the beauty is the, the son will open his arms and go, hey, I know, come back. Here, come back and lean into me in the beauty of what I've done for you. Pray that hearts would be encouraged in Jesus. That we'd lean into him as our good and faithful Savior. Would you stand as you pray with me?